Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Okay, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino, reporting from quarantine here outside the Washington, D.C. area. And we have a very exciting episode for you today. I'm recording remotely, of course, and I have two guests also recording remotely, both of whom have been on the podcast before. Uh, the first guest coming to us from overseas in Denmark is Jakob Mushingama. He is the executive director of Justitia, a Copenhagen-based think tank that focuses on human rights and the rule of law. And he is also the host and producer of the excellent podcast, Clear and Present Danger, A History of Free Speech. Jakob, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Nico. It's a pleasure to, uh, to be back on. I really look forward to it. And our next guest is Sarah McLaughlin. She is the Director of Targeted Advocacy here at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, a longtime colleague and also, again, a returning guest to the show. Sarah, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Nico. Sarah, we haven't seen each other in a while because, of course, our offices have been shut down. How are you holding up? I'm okay. I haven't seen too many people in a while, but <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> and Jakob, how are things in Denmark? Well, actually, things are starting to look up a bit. Um, so our government uh, initiated a partial shutdown pretty early on. Uh, actually, I was I was flying back from D.C. from a conference at, at Cato about you know free speech, and I think I was on one of the last planes <laughs> out of out of there before uh, before everything shut down. Uh, but uh, next week, uh, no, actually this week, um, kids in uh, will will start go back going back to school. Uh, and so we'll see sort of a, a gradual opening. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, we still do not know when things will open up back here in the United States. Uh, looks like I'll be working from home. Sarah and I will be working from home for the foreseeable future. But it was, what, a week or so ago, a little over a week, that you and Sarah had published a co-authored piece in Foreign Policy about the coronavirus and how it's starting a, quote, censorship pandemic. Sarah, um, let's start with you. Why did you and Jakob get together to write this article? What was the inspiration? Uh, well, we've written a couple pieces together before, uh, just about international speech issues we watch. Um, we both follow the trends pretty closely. And we noticed that almost every day there were these articles popping up about uh, fake news arrests in Turkey, fake news arrests, or fake news arrests in Thailand. And we started seeing a major trend that um, I don't think I have ever seen before, uh, that many fake news arrests happening at once. So, I mean, you're, you're anyone who follows you on Twitter knows you are a regular watcher of uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey. And it seems like this coronavirus has given him yet another reason to go after his critics. Uh, I think it was a March 16th report that you and Jakob write in your article uh, they had identified at least 93 suspects allegedly responsible for unfounded and provocative social media comments about the coronavirus. How have things developed in Turkey and have they gotten worse since that March 16th report? They have gotten worse. Uh, now they're in the hundreds of arrests, I believe, for fake news. Uh, so pretty much, and this is what we're seeing in a lot of places, it's not just clearly wrong information. It's 
provocative posts that suggest that the government isn't handling the outbreak correctly. And, you know, people like Erdogan and authoritarians like him, that's what they like least, people suggesting they're not very good at their jobs. Uh, So this has proven to be another opportunity to go after critics and say, you know, they're just trying to cause a panic. They're harming our country. We need to put them in prison. One of the things that we've actually seen as a result of the coronavirus outbreak is are some governments, uh, local or federal here in the United States, releasing nonviolent criminals, uh, people accused of breaking law or charged and convicted with breaking the law, I should say. Uh, and I guess I saw reports that in Turkey, they had actually started releasing some prisoners, but not the political prisoners. That's correct. Yeah. So um, I, I wish I could remember uh, who wrote it, but I read an op-ed in the Washington Post um, and someone suggested that, um, you know, someone who was corrupt, a corrupt politician could be set free right now. But the journalists who reported that corruption would still be in prison because um, journalists, activists, um, people who have written about human rights, they're not allowed out of prison right now. Jakob, were, were you following the developments out of China early in the crisis and kind of how they were responding to uh, reports about the coronavirus? I was because we actually had an interesting case here in Denmark where where a um, uh, a newspaper, actually Jyllandsposten, the very newspaper that published the cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad that led to sort of a, a huge free free speech crisis, they published a a cartoon of the Chinese flag, and then uh, instead of, instead of sort of stars, they had sort of coronavirus uh, symbols, uh, and the uh, the the Chinese embassy vehemently protested demanded an apology um and 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 behaved as as you know as they always do whenever something slights the supposed uh, the the so-called uh, or hurt the so-called feelings of of the chinese people which which basically means saying something that the chinese communist party doesn't like and 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 there were similar incidents i believe in in belgium uh, so so that that sort of focused my attention on it uh, from back back in back in january um but then um uh, and then, obviously, I, I followed the the stories of the censorship in in China, which may well have contributed to the to this uh, turning into a pandemic rather than a more localized uh, epidemic that that perhaps could have been handled earlier if there had been transparency uh, rather than than sort of stonewalling and and, and trying to shove uh, everything uh, under the carpet. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the early stories indicated that one of the first doctors to report on this new and novel disease uh, had been approached by the authorities. Had I don't know if he had been actually thrown in prison in Wuhan in the Wuhan province, uh, but he ultimately contracted uh, the coronavirus and then died uh, subsequently. And there's also indications and in reporting going on right now that the outbreak in China was worse than. We've been led to believe. Uh, I, I think I've seen reports that China had purchased a significant number of body bags, which it can't account for the number of dead that they actually uh, reported. But again, that's all reporting that I've seen uh, and perhaps speculative. We can't get confirmation because the Chinese government is is usually pretty restrictive on, on those sorts of things. Jakob, Viktor Orban in Hungary has been kind of a leader in the crackdown on civil liberties uh, for years now, and he's seized the opportunity that the coronavirus outbreak presents to uh, take that a step further. Correct? Yeah, he certainly he certainly has. I mean, he for for the past decade or so, he has sort of 
slowly but steadily tried to dismantle uh, Hungary's uh, democracy um, and, and trying to sort of impose a more nationalist conservative version of, of illiberal democracy. Uh, and so, uh, like any good authoritarian, he saw an opportunity with this crisis because people have a tendency to rally around uh, political leaders uh, and 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 be fine with 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 restrictions in in times of of crisis and fear and uncertainty. And so, he's basically uh, allowed to rule by decree, um, and and that can that can theoretically be revoked by by parliament, um, requiring. But but he has uh, basically a super majority in parliament. So 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 basically, I think he'll be calling the shots. But from the point of view of free speech. The most worrying thing is that uh, this was accompanied by uh, uh, an amendment of the, the, the criminal code, which would allow um, people to be um, imprisoned for up to five years for spreading fake news about um, the coronavirus and, and the government's response to it. So that obviously um, has a chilling effect on, on, on critical journalism, which is already suffering in, in Hungary, where you have very few... Uh, independent newspapers, print newspapers left because, you know, in, a, in, a, in another classic move by authoritarians, uh, hung, hung, uh, Auburn and his, and his cronies have, have bought up a, a lot of, of independent newspapers. Um, so so, so th that, that I think, and this is, remember, this is a European Union member state, uh, Hungary. Um, so... Um, which has led some commentators, like Anne Applebaum, for instance, who, who writes in the Atlantic, um, to to call to 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 say that that now officially Hungary is is, is a dictatorship. Um, I I don't know if that if that's uh, um, hype, uh, maybe taking it too far, but there can be no doubt that this is a very serious um, authoritarian threat and 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 a clear and present danger, if you like to. To, to, to media freedom uh, and free speech in general in, in, in Hungary, which has already, uh, you know, at least um, been put on a ventilator. Yeah. What's the European Union's response been to these developments in Hungary, uh, if there have been any developments to the recent efforts to uh, consolidate power under Viktor Orban, or more generally? I mean, it is a, a EU member state, but it's not on, on the euro, correct? Um, yeah, um, so, 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 the, the, so. so, so, so the, the, the response has been quite meek, um, against, I mean, the, the European Union is really struggling to find out what to do about Hungary and also Poland. Both, both these member states are systematically undermining the rule of law, liberal democratic values. Uh, but, um, so there was this statement by the, by a number of, of European Union member states, including Denmark and the Netherlands, which said that, uh, yes, you, you are, member states can take uh, exceptional measures, uh, but they have to respect fundamental values, be proportionate, and should not undermine press freedom and freedom of expression. Now, that was clearly meant to target Hungary, but it didn't specifically mention Hungary. And smart as Orban is, his government then said, well, we'll just uh, join this, <laughs> this statement <laughs> by the European Union. Uh, so, so that you know turned into to a bit of a of, of a diplomatic uh, own goal, and and I don't know that there's appetite to really uh, forcefully go after uh, go after uh, Hungary. 
um, because I, I really think that when you look at sort of the, the countries that, that Sarah and I identified in our piece, uh, the, the fake news laws, with, with one or two exceptions, really tend to be uh, the authoritarian liberal uh, states, whereas I would say most of, of the classic liberal democracies have, have shied away from that. They have certainly restricted uh, freedom of assembly, freedom of movement, and so on, but but uh, less frequently gone after, you could say, uh, opinion and, and, and news and, and the sharing of information. So I think that uh, is, is a really uh, important red line when, when, when trying to determine which, which states have handled these uh, measures uh, uh, in, the, in, the, in the most democratic uh, and least authoritarian way. Sarah, I know you track uh, actions by foreign governments with respect to freedom of expression pretty closely. You did it even before this crisis. Is that kind of your impression as well, that the liberal democratic countries have cracked down less on free expression than the more authoritarian ones? Or have you even seen some more liberal democratic countries start to implement measures on freedom of expression that one might call illiberal? I know you and Jakob in your piece identify uh, South Africa as one of the countries that's placing restrictions on expression. Yeah, I would say generally uh, the speech restrictions going on because of coronavirus track with what was already going on in countries before. Um, a lot of the countries on this list already had some kind of restriction on uh, libel against the government, insult to the government, and that's what a lot of these fake news bans are ultimately turning out to be, I think. Um, some form of criticism of the government. Um, but there are places where we have bans popping up. Uh, actually, last week in Puerto Rico, uh, they made it illegal to transmit or allow the transmission of false information with the intention of creating confusion or panic about executive orders about coronavirus. Um, mm. And as a U.S. territory, there are some obviously some serious First Amendment questions raised by that. And we've also seen, I mean, separate from what governments are doing, you and Jakob talk about what social media companies are are doing in response to the coronavirus. Can you two talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I I actually have, uh, I think, on Wednesday, I I'm, I'm I'm doing an interview with Monica Bigert, who is who is uh, the head of of of, of uh, public policy, I think, at 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 Facebook, and and so. Uh, responsible for their content uh, moderation and, and, and community standards. Uh, so, so it'll be very interesting to hear um, what they what they say. But, but I think at least early on, <clears throat> what we saw was that you know Silicon Valley is uh, not immune to coronavirus. So a lot of people could no longer work in the office. So that also af- affected uh, moderators, and so they ramped up. Um, AI, the use of AI or automated content moderation, which which seemed to affect uh, more bona fide uh, journalistic stories than than usually. So there were pieces from the New York Times and Atlantic that that were that were removed uh, because it was uh, sort of a blunt instrument. Often when you, when you try to use AI to to determine what is uh, uh, disinformation or, or not, and and just in general, I think they've. They 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 are trying to walk this tightrope between ensuring the flow of essential information uh, to people because we're all sitting online, sort of 
looking desperately to try to understand the the nature of this crisis and then trying to 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 filter out uh, disinformation. But I think that's I mean how it's it's not always you know very easy because you know you have in February I believe uh, sort of the the Surgeon General going out and saying you know don't use face masks don't buy them and then you have the CDC later on going out and say actually. You should make these face masks yourself, and the and the Surgeon General dem, dem, demonstrating how you should do it. Uh, here in Denmark, we've had our health authorities in in January saying, late January saying, you know, oh, there's very little risk of the coronavirus spreading to 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 Denmark, and also until just a few few days ago, they said there was very little risk of catching yeah um, coronavirus from people who are asymptomatic, which you know. For months, studies have had shown the opposite, which is, I guess, one of the reasons why this this has turned into a pandemic because because you can actually infect others when even though you you're asymptomatic. So so I guess it's, you know, even health authorities and experts don't fully understand it. The data, everything is in flux. So how you determine whether something is disinformation or not, you know, apart from, you know, drink bleach, and it'll, <laughs> and, and 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 it'll cure you. Uh, I think uh, is 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 difficult. Or in the United States, we had a couple that you know, hearing about the what is it the hydroxychloroquine uh, treatment, alleged treatment for coronavirus, had drinking drinking like or ate chlorine tablets from their pool or something. I think their uh, aquarium. <laughs> even worse, yeah, uh, thinking that that might do something for them. So, have we seen for sure? Have we are are we for sure on the reporting that? the bots are responsible for the increase in posts being taken down on social media. I mean, has Facebook so much as recognized that at this point that they're, that they're just using blunt instruments because they can't bring people into the office to. Uh, it's a make- good question. It's, it's, it's something that I'll, I'll certainly ask Monica uh, on Wednesday. It's, it's, it's a, it was a piece in the wire in, in wired, which I think is, is normally quite credible on, on all things tech. Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, from the outset, I, I, I think, uh, that 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 it is uh, a credible story, uh, though they may well have have tweaked their algorithms and 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 sort of ensured a better uh, hit and miss uh, ratio. But though again, you know, uh, it's another interesting question. You know, once uh, are they going to release all the data of how much they removed compared to uh, normal periods? And and you know, they have fact checkers, but you know, how do you how do you fact check the fact checkers? Uh, so so I think. There'll, in general, there'll be a lot of evaluation about how everyone has handled this, and I think we should definitely also demand transparency and scrutiny of, of social media companies on, on how they managed uh, the flow of information. Yeah, I don't know if it's so much related to the coronavirus crisis, although the timeline seems to suggest it is, but we at FIRE, we, we post ads on, on, on social media and Facebook in order to advertise our programs, and we've been finding increasingly in the past couple of weeks that our ads are getting declined and then uh, getting approved on, on subsequent appeal, uh, which, you know, we always had, you know, we always need to make tweaks to ads here and there in order to get them uh, approved on Facebook, because I guess freedom of expression or promoting freedom of expression is col- considered political advocacy uh, by Facebook. So you have to go through a special process, but never have we dealt so much with a situation where almost all of our ads are getting disapproved uh, at the outset and then getting approved on appeal because they do uh, comport with their their community standards and their rules and regulations. But this is something that we've been noticing in the past couple of weeks. Sarah, I want to ask you again, is there a country that you seem to be the worst actor 
as far as the fake news bans go or the imprisoning of people who are spreading, quote unquote, disinformation or panic? Um, so I don't know too much about the enforcement yet, but uh, from what I've read, Zimbabwe had probably the most severe response so far. Uh, they enacted a lockdown uh, where a provision of it um, punishes the publication of fake news with up to 20 years imprisonment, which is probably the most severe one I've seen so far. Um, most are in you know months to five years. Uh, but 20 years is extreme. Yeah. There was a report that Turkmenistan banned the, the, the use of the word coronavirus, but I think that turned out to be uh, to be actually actually not true, a misunderstanding of, of, of their policy, even though although Turkmenistan is an extreme country when it comes to to censorship. Um, and uh, but 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 that that was a report, I think it was uh, mentioned even in NPR and everything, but 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 subsequently turned out not to be accurate. Why should we, during times of crises like these, tolerate false or misleading information uh, that could indeed provoke panic, uh, that could indeed spread misinformation and could indeed potentially cost us lives? Jakob, if you want to start, uh, you know, why, why, should we, why should we tolerate this? Yeah, so, so um, first of all, I think having access to information is crucial uh, during uh, such times uh, as as now, I, I think you know the lack of information might lead to to more panics. Um, actually, I mean, imagine if uh, the government simply shut down the internet as they do in some Indian states, not necessarily related to coronavirus, but um, that that so that might uh, cause even more panic. You you want to know. What's going on? And you also think I, I think you, you you want to understand the rationale behind the government's response. Why you know you're also much more likely to uh, accept and respect social distancing measures if you actually get an explanation for why this is uh, for why this is uh, necessary. Uh, and 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 you know I think also on balance that and, and this you know there might be changes from. From, from state to state, depending on, uh, you know, trust in media, institutions, politicians, and so on. But on balance, uh, I, th I, I think you have a better chance of eliminating rumors and disinformation if you allow to keep uh, most uh, channels open. Also, very interestingly, very recently, uh, The Economist uh, published a study um, that showed that, uh, in general, uh, democracies um, have... A lower degree of mortality than non-democracies when it comes to epidemics. Now, this data obviously didn't include the current uh, coronavirus uh, crisis, but 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 still interesting. I think this this data goes back to the 60s, and and the authors of the study suggest that that um, the ability to to get information, to share uh, information, inform your your citizens is is, is crucial. Is it actually an advantage? For, for democracies, whereas, you know, authoritarian states can move swiftly, impose measures uh, overnight, uh, but they may actually lack uh, a critical feedback information of uh, a mechanism of, of information. And then, you know, ha having done a, a podcast on the history of free speech, I think you know, almost without exception, every state um, authoritarian government um, that, that I have looked at have adopted laws against 
uh, disinformation, false information uh, as a measure to crack down on dissent. Uh, and it has almost always been uh, vehemently abused. Um, and, and, you know, you, you know that even, even uh, you know, in, in the United States where you've had the, the Sedition Act um, from from 1798, that I think is a, is a big uh, should 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 be a, a danger sign for for any impulses in the U.S. of of what happens when you when you try to adopt such such laws. Hey, well, it's it's funny you should bring that up. I think it was over the weekend or maybe sometime last week. I was listening to a lecture by John Barry, who wrote a book a number of years ago called The Great Influenza, which was about the Spanish flu which killed millions of people and happened to come during World War I. And during this lecture, I think it's from 2018, he gave this lecture, he's talking about how the response to the influenza was muted or delayed here in the United States because at the time, of course, we were at war and we also had a, a new sedition act that was used to punish people who essentially criticized the war effort or diminished morale within the country. And one way that it was perceived to diminish morale was to start, quote, a panic about the influenza and what it was doing to cities and states across the country. And so even in that case, even in the United States, about 100 years ago, we saw the Sedition Act being used to silence people, uh, not just because of the influenza, but also because what it would do to the war effort. And I've heard it be discussed that the reason it's called the Spanish influenza is not because the influenza started in Spain. Uh, actually, by all indications, it, it probably didn't, but rather because Spain was one of the only countries, uh, it was a neutral country during World War I, and as a result, it didn't have these restrictions on reporting. So more people were hearing about the influenza at Spain at the time. Uh, so as a result, it got the name, the Spanish influenza. There's also, I guess, the, the king of Spain had, had contracted the virus. Uh, so that also uh, made it top of mind for people. But it, it's funny how censorship 100 years ago resulted in giving a virus a name that it probably shouldn't get. I actually... That, 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 might be, that might be the best argument yet for censorship, <laughs> if <you're, Yeah. laughs> at, least if you're, at least if you're Spanish. Some leaders might say so. I think it actually, the virus actually started... Or some people believe it started in Kansas, yeah, I've, uh, I've off, heard a, that too. off a military base, American military base, and, and it was American GIs who who brought it overseas when they were when they were transported for the war efforts. Jakob, having done your history of free speech podcast, is this unusual? Uh, the way that some of these more authoritarian governments are responding to these crises. I mean, this seems to me to be something that all governments have done throughout time when there's a crisis that could make them look bad. Sure. You know, I'm pretty strong on, on civil liberties. I certainly ha uh, understand why in, 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 uh, during the, this corona crisis, we need, you know, basically to say, you know, say, in, in, in order to, to safeguard health, we, we, you know, we have to sacrifice certain liberties. So, so I'm okay and I'm fine. I completely understand, respect the need to, to, to uh, sacrifice freedom of assembly, for instance, freedom of movement, even you know, uh, limited um, uh, expanded access to private data and so on. Um, but, but I think 
you know, freedom of expression is uh, is 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 uh, a red line that that you should be very careful about about crossing. Also, just because you want there to be information and scrutiny about the restrictions that you that you uh, that that you adopt in terms of other rights. But you're absolutely right that especially authoritarian states, authoritarian states have to project strength. They have to project an image of being in complete control and authority. And so they cannot tolerate a situation where their authority uh, sort of is seen to to get out of hand, where they're not on top of the situation, where, where suddenly people are saying, well, you know, people are dying because you're not doing uh, uh, enough. That is that That is actually... That, that that is poison to to an authoritarian government, and that's why I think authoritarian states are at least uh, uh, as afraid of, uh, um, uh, of of scrutiny, transparency, and, and and critical opinion as they are of of the of the virus. Because if they're seen as being uh, having lost control, not being on top of things, uh, then uh, their whole image on, on which the authority it builds uh, starts to to uh, un, unravel. You were saying that as a civil libertarian, you're you're sympathetic and in support of some of the restrictions, whether it's on freedom of assembly or, or freedom of movement. But is there a way that governments, if they need to institute those restrictions, can do so in a manner that, for example, like Orban has taken authority for himself with no end date. Yeah. So so I'm here, assuming when writing these laws, we as civil libertarians want a uh, a sunset yeah, provision sure, in there. Yeah. Sure. That, that that so so the Danish government has there's a sunset clause uh, in there. Uh I think, you know, it's it's a year. I, I I'd like I'd like to have seen expiry after 6 months and then it could be renewed if we if if still needed. And I think they you know, any measures should should also be narrowly tailored to the actual nature of the threat so if you need to uh, use extraordinary measures to fight coronavirus then those extraordinary measures should be as far as possible limited to this specific public health uh, emergency and not give you powers to do all kinds of other things that have nothing to do with coronavirus so so basically it shouldn't just you know be a rubber stamp to institute all kinds of other uh, um, policies that would normally require, uh, you know, consent of parliament or, you know, have uh, there'd be different checks and balances that, that no longer apply. Those checks and balances can maybe be suspended, but, but, but only when these measures are, are uh, aimed specifically at the, at, at this. And obviously they shouldn't go further than absolutely uh, than absolutely necessary, and so you know, I can certainly understand why. If you say, um, if if a hundred people want to meet, <clears throat> uh, then you can almost, if you allow that, uh, if people to meet, um, you can almost have like a mathematical model which will show how many people will die if you allow that. But if you say, you know, we're going to crack down on on, on disinformation, uh, I would say you don't have the same. Clear and present danger uh, to 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 public uh, health. So so, uh, or or the same same uh, empirical justification. Exactly, and you would also risk curtailing the benefits of, of criticism. For instance, I'm quite certain that that health authorities have 
been forced to change course on issues such as face masks and, and other things because there's a rigorous debate in the media, on social media, where people start questioning these. Uh, and, and of course, lot, some of it is tinfoil hat conspiracy theories, but there are actually a lot of really thoughtful people out there who, you know, who, who, uh, who, who can provide uh, critical thinking and, and different perspectives. And, and, and uh, so uh, a lot of the times we, we may actually uh, see people who, will, who who can who can point to shortcomings in in governmental policies, and, and you know that's understandable because they are operating in real time under huge pressure with imperfect knowledge and, and a lack of sufficient data. So anyone would probably make mistakes. But then the more you know uh, input you have, uh, I would say uh, the better, even if you have to sift out a lot of nonsense as well. Sarah, you and I work in the higher education context. What have we seen in higher ed uh, as far as restrictions go or lack thereof? Uh, well, FIRE did write to uh, NYU Grossman School of Medicine late last month um, after we learned that they had a policy ordering doctors uh, who were faculty not to speak with reporters uh, without approval from their uh, marketing office. Uh, and it kind of tracks with, I think, a concerning trend we've seen in lots of places where medical professionals are being told that their jobs are on the line if they speak out. And it's a good example of um, a non-government restriction in some cases that is still extremely damaging to speech and to our understanding of this pandemic. Yeah, it's one of the ways that we learn about, I mean, one of the ways to really get the country, in my opinion, on board with some of these social distancing requirements is to actually hear what frontline workers are experiencing in the hospitals, to, uh, to, to hear them talk about their lack of personal protective equipment, to hear them talk about uh, the very sad state that their intensive care units are in, the, the patients that are coming in, the emergency procedures that they're having to take that they've never had to take before. It can animate the public to action that it otherwise might not be willing to take. We've also, you know, this this whole uh, coronavirus thing has brought about a new new kinds of issues in, in fire's world and we that we've had to respond to in, including a lot of classes now actually i think most colleges and universities at this point have moved to move to online instruction and we've seen uh this new ph phenomenon called zoom bombing whereby <laughs> i hate that uh, i have to learn what zoom bombing means <laughs> yeah no i mean we, we started hearing about this almost as soon as uh classes started moving online you have internet trolls some of these Zoom is an online platform for teleconferencing, essentially, and a lot of the links that are used or circulated for these teleconferences are public links. Uh, you know, it's zoom.com slash nonsensical list of characters. And I guess somehow people were finding these public links and coming in and, and showing, infiltrating, essentially showing pornographic material, uh, you know, shouting race its language, putting things up on, on screen, uh, you know, all, all sorts of disruption to the classes. And that, that kind of forced us at fire to confront new sorts of challenges and, and to put out guidelines for online, uh, considering civil liberties and in, in online instruction, which, which, you know, more or less can track the principles that we use, uh, for in-person instruction, which is to say that professors, instructors should have, uh, the ability to control their classroom uh, to the extent that people are allowed to be in the classroom and the ex instructor is allowed to police uh, ex expression in there. It's got to be viewpoint neutral. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll link in the show notes 
some of the the principles or the blog that we have that enumerates the principles for for online instruction. But more or less, you can't allow for a heckler to come and, and shut down your class. Just in the same way, you can't have some heckler run into a classroom in a physical environment and shut down a class either. But yeah, that NYU case, of course, there's very little comparison to what happened in China and what happened in the United States. But insofar as there's been a shutdown on reporting as to what doctors are experiencing in their hospitals, uh, you know, that you, you don't even want to get close to emulating what happened in China to, uh, and, and Nicholas Christakis, who is a professor at Yale and, and of course famous for the Halloween controversy, but is himself an expert on social networks said that was what happened at NYU. And it's what, what's happening with the shutdown of, uh, or the censorship or the gagging of, of medical professionals just makes the pandemic worse. Uh, censorship does not help in this case. Jakob, by kind of way of wrapping up here, can we talk a little bit about the way forward in Europe? Uh, what you said Denmark's going to open up soon. How do you think this will impact civil liberties, not just in Denmark, but in the European Union more broadly moving forward? Yeah, that's a very good question. <clears throat> I would say, you know, Generally, I get the impression that if you look at, at polls, uh, um, you know, almost all leaders, re- regardless of, of how well they've handled the, the crisis or not, tend to be extremely popular. Really? Interesting. Um, I don't know if that's, you know, across the board. Um, but in a lot of countries, uh, you know, um, and, and, you know, because in a, in, a, in, a, in a time of crisis, we sort of rally together um uh, so, so I think there are a couple of different uh, scenarios. So one scenario is something that taps in to illiberal developments that have already, uh, you know, uh, started in, here in, in Europe, um, where uh, people long more for uh, decisive executive action and less sort of the checks and balances and, and independent uh, courts and, and, and human rights and uh, all these things that that stand in the way of of, of, of acting decisively on, on 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 huge challenges facing society because and, and that's very much what what has happened in in, in in democracies governments are implementing draconian decisions and measures that would normally never get I mean sort of the the different aid packages that have been rushed through Congress in the U.S. I mean, outside a coronavirus crisis, that would never happen, right? I mean, I'm not an expert on U.S. politics, but it it, it seems unlikely that, you know, Congress would would be able to get uh, together and agree on on something like that uh, outside uh, an emergency. Um, So so that's sort of the more pessimistic where we say, actually, we don't need uh, all these uh, checks and balances, rule of law guarantees. The other is saying, you know, now we've really seen what a true emergency uh, is. So we have to be wary about, ac- uh, you know, accepting the next time politici- politicians come running and say, oh, here's a, an emergency. We need uh, new uh, measures to limit uh, this or that uh, freedom because this is absolutely necessary for national security or whatever. And people might say, you know what, we gave you um, the benefit of the doubt during the coronavirus uh, because that was absolutely necessary. But but now we've seen what a true crisis is, and and we're going to be more jealous of our freedoms going forward. I very much hope it'll be the latter scenario, but but uh, I, I I don't know. It might also be a third one that I haven't, in my uh, limited uh, wisdom, been able to foresee. 
Well, we saw before this crisis a declining trust in the European Union. We saw, of course, Brexit. You were seeing declining trust in France as well. Has there been any indication to how that trend will play out after this as well? Like, how's the European Union factoring into this all? Because within the European Union, lots of countries are implementing their own restrictions and kind of having to fend for themselves. And I've read reporting that the European Union isn't really helping financially or otherwise in a way that a lot of countries hoped they would. I think, um, um, again, we, you, you know, there are so many hot takes on what the coronavirus will will <laughs> will 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 result in. You know, will be and 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 you know, most people, you know, their their uh, projections seem to be very much in line with their previous thinking about uh, things. <laughs> so, but 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 I would say that for this has very much been obviously obviously there's been cooperation among member states uh so there's been great acts of solidarity between some uh, member states you know germany other countries helping italy but very much this has been uh, a case i would say of national governments reasserting their role and the european union has been a bit on the sidelines not being able to uh, coordinate effectively i also think you know i don't think that's necessarily a huge problem or it shouldn't be a huge problem for the for the EU because I don't you know when it comes to to such matters I don't think anyone in any European country would you know if you had a, a, a European Union task force that were to decide on the distribution of ventilators you know um, that would that, that would simply not be acceptable to people saying you know oh we have these people in Brussels who says that you know we need to take ventilators uh, from Germany and and give them to 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 Italy uh, that that would be a mess. So I think uh, it has shown that national governments have a lot of legitimacy when it comes to these uh, kinds of issues. And and uh, my overall impression is at currently that the European Union has has been a bit sidelined on this. But what it, what it will mean in terms of civil liberties? Again, I mentioned these two differing uh, scenarios. One being, you know, let's uh, let this has shown us that we don't really need. Uh, a stringent protection of civil liberties and rule of law. We need decisive executive government that can do what is necessary. Uh, the other being, you know, we only uh, we need to sacrifice uh, liberties uh, in times of genuine emergencies, uh, and um, we need to be more jealous outside those real and genuine emergencies. Sarah, on your end, what are you looking for or anticipating on the other side of this crisis as far as freedom of expression goes, uh, you know, as it relates to the United States or to some of these countries that you've been tracking uh, for many years now? Uh, I think it'll be interesting to watch what happens um, with these countries passing fake news bans and enforcing them after the immediacy of coronavirus has passed. Um there are some countries that are known for their enforcement of fake news bans before coronavirus, uh, like Egypt is uh, one of the most notable examples. But, uh, you know, we haven't seen the extent of fake news bans that we have now. So I'll be really interested in seeing whether they survive, whether people still support some kind of fake news bans after this passes, or if countries will just go back to their uh, more traditional ways of targeting critics like 
banning insults to the president or libel of the government. Sarah, these these fake news bans, that phrase fake news, of course, came into the popular lexicon uh, with President Donald Trump and his campaign and his use of it. Were these laws that you started to see percolate kind of a reflection of that development with President Donald Trump or had you seen them before then and they and are they calling them fake news bans, for example? Uh, yeah, well, I think a lot of them are just some variation on restrictions that authoritarian, authoritarian countries have always enforced. Um, so, you know, as in Turkey, it would be insults. Now it's fake news. Um, yeah, I, I do think the prevalence of the term uh, fake news definitely um, exploded in the past five years or so. Um, but you know, I can't say that it necessarily originated with Trump, um, but um, but people yeah, started yeah people started yeah. calling them. I, I that think I think, but I think it has you know legitimized um, the, the the crackdown on on such uh, or in, in, with the use of such laws by by authoritarian populist strongmen in in other countries. Obviously, the the concept of of laws against uh, disinformation, false information goes 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 back hundreds and hundreds of years, um, uh, um, but but I would say that the use uh, of fake news to target the media, label them uh, enemies of the people. You know, the First Amendment reigns in uh, Trump. He you know even though his campaign sort of goes after journalists, uh, the the First Amendment is is a formidable barrier. Uh, against that, but in in other countries like the Philippines, yeah, countries like that, um, they, they they don't have the same kinds uh, of protections. But but and and I would also but I would also say that the we talked about the European Union before, and you know maybe one of the reasons why <clears throat> there has been muted criticism of Hungary is that you know if you go back to October 2019, the European Commission actually uh, warned Facebook and and other social media platforms that they didn't do enough to remove disinformation online and threaten that if they don't clean up their act, they might go the regulatory way. Um, and France in, in 2018, I think, or, or, or 2019, I forget, enacted a law against fake news uh, prior to and, and during uh, election campaigns. So this means that a number of liberal states and, and the European Union made up of, 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 of mostly liberal democracies have ex in, in fact themselves legitimized some of these uh, laws. Obviously, they envisaged them as, as, as fighting against populism, illiberal populism, and working within rule of law guarantees with independent courts and institutions uh, and so on. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I think this should prompt a rethink uh, on the part of liberal democracies about how far you are willing to sacrifice free speech in order to, to, to fight the enemies uh, and opponents of, of democracies, because in my uh, experience, what, what happens is that you actually end up legitimizing and even sort of uh, uh, drafting the laws and principles for the enemies of, 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 of democracies by, by going down that road. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Jakob, before we turn away here, can you just give us an update on your podcast? You've, you've pretty much wrapped up at this point, correct? Yeah, so uh, we finished with 40, 40 episodes. So we, we we're done with the with the um, I would say the ordinary arc of of the show, and we we ended up with uh, 
with with developments after after World War Two at, at at the UN at, at internet the level of international uh, human rights. But I'll do these um, I'll do these uh, bonus episodes. So so one coming up, like I said, with Monica Bickard, uh, probably being released this week. Monica Bickard, who's head of policy at at, at Facebook, coming out this week or the next. I'm also trying to line up. Um, and a uh, conversation with Dunja Mijatovic, who is the Council of Europe's um, hu- um, High Commissioner for Human Rights. Um, so so I'll, I'll try to do these bonus uh, episodes whenever appropriate. And then, uh, as Sarah knows, um, I'm also trying to convert the podcast into a book, which I find is, is very, very difficult uh, to, to having to sacrifice so much material. Um, but but uh, yeah, so, so, so I'm, I'm working on that uh, as well. Well, Jakob, uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar with your podcast, it's called Clear and Present Danger, A History of Free Speech. Again, you're the executive director of Justitia and the co-author with Sarah of Coronavirus Has Started a Censorship Pandemic. Uh, Jakob, thanks for coming on the show. And Sarah, thank you again uh, for joining us. And I look forward to uh, hopefully seeing you in our office sometime soon. But who, <laughs> who knows if we'll actually get that. Yeah, who knows if we'll actually get there. Thanks a lot, Nico. It's a pleasure. Talk to you soon. Bye. You two stay safe out there. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So to Speak by following us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We take email feedback as well at so to speak at the fire.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Those reviews do help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, thank you again for listening.